Hi, I'm Adam Phillips, and I love comics. Sure, I love superhero comics, but I also love comics that are funny, or romantic, or educational, or even kind of filthy. Some have been around for decades, but I have a special place in my heart for the ones that came and went in the blink of an eye. We call them one-shots, and some of them you may have heard of, while others might make you ask, why? This is One-Shot Wonders. Hey everybody, before we begin this episode, I wanted to make a quick note. We had some kind of technical difficulties with the recording session, and there was a lot of static interference on my end of the call. To save it, and to avoid having to redo the whole thing, I patched in some new dialogue just on my end of the call. It's exactly the same as what I said originally, but it does sound a little different. I hope this won't be too much of a problem as you're listening to it. And now, uh, enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of One Shot Wonders with Adam Phillips. And I should call this one One Shot Wonders with Adam Phillips with Dan DiDio because we are very happy to welcome my former boss, Dan DiDio, (laughs) here for a special One Shot Wonders episode. Dan was the co-publisher at DC Comics. If you prefer, publisher would, would work just as well. And... He was a writer and story editor for Mainframe Entertainment. He worked on a lot of shows like Reboot and War Planets. And in comics, he was he started as co-writer on Superboy with Jimmy Palmiotti and then worked on a lot of other series that were a lot of fun like OMAC and Forever People with artist Keith Giffen. He did uh, runs on Metal Men and... The series Sideways, which was kind of a fun new take on a character that was uh, not unlike Spider-Man. Shush. Dan, any highlights I missed that you want to talk about? No, not at all. Not at all. It's a lot of fun. As a matter of fact, what I like is as you go through those characters that I've worked on over the years, shows a real eclectic mix, which is what I kind of enjoyed about the idea behind One Shot Wonders. These are all the, the, the concepts and ideas people took risks on and wound up doing a project on or for whatever reason, they never made it past a single issue. And yeah. I always have found that fascinating because I've always wondered what made them publish it in the first place. And then the second question is why didn't they publish any more after it was done? Yeah, absolutely. And so today we're going to talk about a comic called Fright featuring son of Dracula from yeah. Atlas comics. Uh, <laughs> this was published April 22nd, 1975, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. God bless Mike. (laughs) Uh, That site is so invaluable, you know? Now, we want to talk a little bit about Atlas Comics before we got into this specific issue, just for people who don't know it, and just because it's fun to talk about. Yeah. But Atlas, which is sometimes called Atlas slash Seagate. Seaboard. Uh, Seaboard, excuse me, Seaboard. I always mix that up with the uh, Seagate distribution company. Which also published, by the way. Yeah, right. That's right. Anyway, they basically Martin Goodman, who was the publisher at Marvel from the beginning, left the company in 1972 after having sold it off to another company. And then after a couple of years, got back into publishing with this short-lived company, Atlas, that ran from the middle of 1974 into about a year later, 1975. They put out 23 different titles in color comics and five <laughs> magazines and in eight months in eight months and the longest one only ran four issues which is crazy and they also yeah. 
pulled in a lot of great talent. I've got a list here. Archie Goodwin, Steve Ditko, Wally Wood, Neil Adams, Howard Shaken, Alex Toth, you know, Rich Buckler, Mike Plug, and of course, we're going to be talking about Frank Thorne. Frank Thorne. Yeah. yeah. But Atlas is, you know, was such an interesting experiment. It actually, you know, what the fun part about it is, Adam, it's actually a little bit more of an experiment. It was more of, of re a revenge publication, which is what <laughs> I really found most interesting about it. And as the story goes, Martin Goodman sold Marvel, but he had a he had thought that he had an agreement where his son Chip Goodman would take over as publisher right. with the with the new owners, and therefore his son would keep continue that um, legacy with the family and and publishing the comics. When the new owners came in. Goodman was out and Stan Lee was instituted as a publisher. So ultimately what uh, Martin did down the road is that he took the money he made from Marvel or some of the money he made from Marvel and established this to directly compete with Marvel, not just in regards to putting more comics on the shelf, but also to take some of their top talent and move them over to his books yep. with the hope that they would be able to supplant Marvel as a top publisher. Yeah. So, and I noticed, I looked at this whole list of, titles that they put out in this brief window one of them was called movie monsters which is like you know that's like the most martin goodman title ever yeah i mean and, and goodman was always a, a person at least from what i understand from different things i've read and people i spoke to over the years that he always always faulted on the side of quantity over quality yep and just looking at the sheer volume of books that they put out in a very short period of time and a widely diverse line of product too i mean in those days comics weren't just about superheroes so because of that you get all these crazy titles war titles western titles romance titles comedy titles you know horror titles all within the mix of this all at one time coming out just flooding the market yeah right and this is right at the time when comics were really starting to suffer at the newsstand exactly and there wasn't and there wasn't a direct market yet so you know they they kind of didn't have much of a chance, unfortunately. No, no. And, then, you know, they had, they had everything from uh, paper shortages just to shelf space, just to, <laughs> I hate to say it this way, but corrupt distribution. You know, comics not, oh, even, yeah. making it to the, not even making it to the stands, just being left in warehouses and places. So people never even found them. So in those days, you never had much traction. So it was, it was, it was a, um, I don't even want to say valiant gesture. It was um, <laughs> it was definitely an emotional gesture right from the start to go out and publish this. And uh, as yeah. I said, it was pretty short-lived. It was. And they had some interesting people on staff, too. I mean, Stanley's brother, Larry Lieber, was one of the mm -hmm. editors. Actually, he was the editor-in-chief of the Editor-in-chief. Yeah, you're right. You're yeah. right. You know, Jeff Roven, who has done a lot of work in and around comics, was one of the editors. Dave Kraft was an assistant editor. Yep. So... This this particular comic, Fright, Son of Dracula. First of all, I think I've seen this story on Sven Gulli. <laughs> it is pretty bonkers. Uh, written by Gary Friedrich with art by Frank Thorne. Go ahead. Uh, you're absolutely right. And I think that's the, the fun part about it, too. You have to understand, at that particular moment when this came out, I mean, Tomb of Dracula was very successful. Mm -hmm. uh, from Marvel. It was a monthly comic at its time. It was probably in the middle of its a rather extensive run when uh, Son of Dracula was introduced. So it was already competing with something already on the shelf. Frank Thorne, for the most for most reasons, was a highly recognizable talent and, and, and truly a force in his own way, having done some really um, now rather, rather similar work on um, 
Red Sonia, which was always interesting to me, was a good run of the, on his book. And then Gary yeah. Fredericks, actually, who was, if I remember correctly, one of the creators on Ghostwriter and so many other books yep. at Marvel at the time that uh, he really was ingrained in the Marvel system and, and made his way to over Atlas for a short period of time. So it had quality talent and and people who had a proven track record in, in the horror and genre business. So it seemed like the, the right mix of people. And so, you know, it, it's a, like I said, it's a fascinating book. I mean, the only thing going back to the history of Atlas, the one thing that working against it was within two months after this book coming out, Atlas stops publishing. Yeah. So you can never figure out whether or not it was number one, only one issue because it only deserved one issue or because everything stopped on the, on the company. So, but right, right now it was stands as a standalone unto itself. Yeah. You know, I wish I, I would love to know where they were going to go with it. It was a bi it was labeled as a bi-monthly, so yeah. they did not have much of a chance, Yeah, but it's, it's unfortunate because it is such a weird premise and you know, they were just getting started. Anything is anything driven with vampires always winds up being a little racy. And I, I think Frank Luan's artwork feeds into that in a nice way. So it really brings it to life. And for me, as a 15-year-old reading that comic, um, you know, I enjoyed that tonality and sensibility. And, and honestly, like I said, I was one of those voracious readers of anything that had to do with any sort of horror comics. And I have a rather, uh, rather extensive collection of horror and mystery and ghost comics and things like that. So mm. I would jump on a book like this any chance I can get. But, you know, like I said, there was, there was a, a Tomb of Dracula book out there already. So they had a carve a completely different sensibility and it's a completely different area and a very familiar turf especially when if you look at vampire books at that time it's not just Tomb of dracula but morbus has his own title there's magazines of, of dracula there's magazines of vampire tales coming out of marvel so there's a lot of material out there that they're competing against when this book is launched that's true but at the same time this is the early 70s the two biggest booms in comics and elsewhere were monsters and kung fu yeah and you know you you don't Martin Goodman, as we said earlier, was known for glutting the market. And also he was known for if Westerns were popular, you know, the word would come down to editorial in at Marvel, you know, start doing Westerns, more Westerns. And they would. Right. Well, that, that's the funny part, too, is it also one of the one of the other Atlas one shot wonders is a, 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 a comic called Hands of the Dragon, uh, which also was his yes. answer to the Kung Fu craze at that moment. Sure. Yeah. I, anyway, I, w I was going to say, as far as Frank Thorne goes, I have to admit, I've hardly ever read a full comic. I've always admired his work, but somehow Red Sonja passed me by. And I don't think I ever saw an Atlas comic on the newsstand when I was growing up. Like, I was buying comics, and I, we saw Marvel and DC and some other stuff, but I don't recall ever seeing it, even though I was in suburban New York State. You know, you'd think something would have gotten there but it sure didn't well they they uh, they definitely got to brooklyn which i was happy to say um <laughs> <laughs> yeah so there's a handful of over there and and, and in some ways that was a little bit of a a fun hunt for me so over oh, yeah. the years of collecting i wound up pretty much um getting a copy of I, i'd say i've got about 85 to 90 percent of what atlas has published nice. um which is kind of fun i'm missing a couple of the uh couple of the humor comics, uh, which were reprints of, uh, I think, Tower comics. Yes, at some they point. were. And, uh, and then I missed a couple of the magazines, which didn't miss them because um, 
because I was I didn't see them. I missed them because I didn't know they were Atlas. <laughs> so I found oh, out really? after the fact. Yeah, yeah. The, huh. the monster movies I didn't know it was an Atlas book, and then there was another thing, a romance book, which I didn't know about either. Yes. Yeah. I wonder but, uh, did they did they not have the Atlas um, branding on the cover? The mag- that's that's where you get the seaboard branding. The seaboard oh, is okay. on the magazines, okay. and the Atlas is on the uh, on the on the four color comics. So let's talk about this story because it starts out with a pretty standard or a typical Dracula setup where he's uh, rescuing a woman who's been accused of being a witch and he is of course you know he's got his he's not just rescuing her because he's a nice guy he's rescuing her because you know the, the, oh you look like dinner yeah but then he realizes that she must be some distant relation because she's got the the birthmark <laughs> upon your breast yeah and they go straight into the why we're fourth cousins so you know they're distantly related it's it's really funny yeah but um, but since it's a comic if they're going to have a kid they had to get married first which i think is really important <laughs> yes it's great and you know before you know it little baby son of dracula has come along and she wants to protect him so she sends him off with another person to set sail for America and it just it goes quickly I mean this is a fast setup yeah it, it's it's actually a really fast moving story because it it time shifts a couple of times uh, it even has a couple of flashbacks in there and, and moves very quickly through it I think yeah. also what's fun to notice also this is Son of Dracula uh, over in Tomb of Dracula it'll be another year or so two years or so before Tomb of Dracula, the Dracula in that comic has a son as well. Um, <laughs> so, so it predates at least the Tomb of Dracula son story. Uh, That's amazing. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And then this funny but horrible moment where you know the mother, uh, what's her name? Do we oh, know? I don't Does she have a name? Um, I'm just looking at this, going like, I'm not sure she ever gets a name. You know, what? it's a really good question. You know what? Go back in the back in the comics and go back and check out. Who she I'm is. trying to see. Anyway, she's running along trips and manages to fall on a wooden stake that's part of a construction site and then she's impaled so it eliminates any possibility of her rising as a vampire herself yeah i I always took it as that she self-impaled herself in order to avoid being the 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 pawn of dracula for that time she had gotten her son to safety um gave him a special medallion filled with soil from Transylvania so that we <laughs> control his transformation. Not sure how that works, yeah, um, I know. but that's okay. Um, and <laughs> actually the, the soil is there to keep him alive during the daytime. Of and, course. And then he, he sleeps with a cross on him in order to contain the vampire, vampire urges within him. Um, it's actually kind of silly, but kind of fun at the same time. Oh, yeah, uh, I think yeah. also the, the thing that we were talking about Frank Thorne before, I think yeah. what I what I one of the things I like is Frank Thorne knows how to draw sexy characters, but his vampire, his Dracula was not sexy. It was very vicious, yeah, and very feral. And I think he was able to really create a sense of real dread from Dracula. That ultimately later, when the son has the transformation uh, into a vampire, he goes from somebody who's a handsome man to somebody who's this feral beast also. So yeah. I think that just the strength of the art really yeah. is able to create that delineation in the character and the transformation more impactful because of that. And there's some really inventive page layouts here too. I mean, um, there's a page here where 
the panel borders. So Dracula sort of, you know, reeling back from across and reaching out to the right where the panel border should be, but the panel border is shaped exactly to his silhouette. Yeah. And it's, it's really fascinating. It's it's like, I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like that. It's interesting. You know, I had a, I had a conversation with Walt Simonson once and Walt really, you know, I'm not an artist. So, you know, naturally when they speak, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by a lot of the thoughts that go into the art. And Walt used to say about how you don't draw panel by panel, but you look at the entire page as the piece of art and every panel is constructed to make the page, the art, not the individual panel. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why you see these interesting layouts and such. And I I mean, honestly, Frank Bowen's storytelling here is, is textbook on how to teach people how to condense a story while still being able to have highly dramatic moments, be able to lift it out of it. And also to move a story very quickly, which is more important, you know? Yeah. And it is densely packed. I mean, there are a lot of pages with, six panels at least even yeah. more on some pages you know there's a there's a lot going on yeah, but you know, it doesn't feel more importantly it doesn't feel crowded which is i think the most important thing. and and it's it's easy on the eyes to follow which is the other important thing to do so absolutely you, yes. you know so yeah now let me ask you is there any monster mythology full of more loopholes than the vampire mythology you, you know it's uh it's so funny you said that because I just had that conversation with somebody. I was watching the. Got to forgive me. I forget the name of the movie that's on Netflix right now about the female vampire on the plane. Oh, uh, and okay. It's a brand new movie, and literally the one thing about vampires, probably even more so than zombies, is <laughs> they they certainly you know certainly play very loose with the rules. Meaning yeah. sunlight, not sunlight. Does it kill them, not kill them? How much blood do they need or not need? What transforms? Why do they sleep? And it seems to be a constantly evolving thing uh, based upon the stories or the inventiveness of the stories they're working on. So the vampires always have some new rules. Probably werewolves have, have that same problem in places too now that I think <laughs> about it. Um, you know, what type of transformation takes place there. But vampires certainly have more of that because... Uh, you know, you've gone from the very sexy interpretation of the vampire, uh, very suave, very sophisticated, and also now to these, like I said, a much more feral vampire that's almost a, yeah. a beast, you know, almost more like the the, the, the a ravenous giant bat than it is a person. So yeah. you see people playing it based upon the needs of the story and sometimes, and in this case, they play both because they need that level of transformation to take place so you can root for the the hero uh, even though he's going to turn into the son of Dracula and be a killer. Right, right. I um, I know we'll never know the answer to this question also, by the way, but I, um, looking through this, wonder, did um, Frank Thorne color this comic himself? Because some of the coloring is actually really inventive. Yeah. And, you know, he's got, like, greens and yellows and faces and things like that. And it's like, uh, this is a pretty artistic approach for 1974. Yeah, well, you know what? If you think back, also, as I said, these this is a book. This is a, <laughs> I, honestly, if the company is about to close the doors two months after this, put this books out. <laughs> I am not sure how many people are watching what's being done here. Yeah, you really. That's so. True. In that case, there's a lot more artistic freedom. You know, if you hear the stories from Frank Miller and Jim Starlin about Daredevil and Captain Marvel, respectively, I think both books were on the border of being canceled. So. Nobody was watching the shop when those guys started to create some of the most inventive comics of their period of time. And I'm sure at this same time, mm-hmm. 
if nobody's watching the shop here, they're going to try different things to see what they can do, get away with, you know, more so than anything else. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is right at that time when the Marvel black and white line, they were putting out tons of comics. Yeah. There was very little oversight. And that's one of the things I find fascinating about that period. And it applies here too, is that they've got to just get those comics out. So it, it, it felt a little like anything goes, you know? Right. Well, you also, a lot of the lines at that time, they just had a single editor managing the entire thing, you know? Yes. So there had to be a certain level of trust between the talent and the editorial that they're operating in conjunction with each other, even if they're not watching each other. Yeah, it's crazy. Let's see. Anything else we want to say about this comic before we wrap it up? Because... I think, you know, it's a 20 page comic. Does that? Well, I, I mean, that's yeah, honestly, Adam, it was the funniest thing about it when I'm saying, when I, when I was prepping for this, when you say you do one shot wonders, I said, well, we can run out of stuff to talk about real fast because it's only one shot. And, well, that's and it's okay. funny because I'm, I'm looking at, I'm looking at all the other things at that. And for me, it's, it's as much as it's talking about the single comic, I love talking about the period of time the comics, the comics created. Yes. Because there for were sure. a lot of one shot things happening at that time. A lot of people taking a lot of wild risks. Because you said it, the industry was a little bit of um, a little bit in a shaky ground, and it's it's actually going to get worse over the next three years. Yeah. And what's going to happen is they're going to try to figure out what the path is and what's going to sell the best. So they're going to try everything possible mm -hmm. uh, to find comics that uh, connect with the with the readers on this, the newsstand. And for me, the Atlas line was a direct attack at Marvel, and at that point, people were more vested in Marvel than they were in DC. So. They went after the, the wrong player, so to speak. And because of that, I think they, they, they fell very short um, on it. But again, you know, it, it was a word. I'd like to think of it as a worthy effort just because it was in Atlas line was innovated, not just in regards to some of the characters were created, even though they were highly derivative, but there was still a lot of innovation <laughs> there. But they were also yeah. innovative in the contracts they were offering. And it was actually starting to set the tone on how to improve creative rights and things of that nature. So there's a lot happening here. And that was what drew a lot of the talent very quickly over to uh -huh. Atlas. And and the interesting part is a lot of these guys, some of them went back to Marvel, some of them went to other places, but you know, they they, they jumped because they believed something was happening here, not just checking, not just following the check. Uh, for me right. on this book though, it did leave with a bizarre story twist, which is the story twist is that the 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 son of Dracula stays human. Uh, as long as he sleeps with a cross on his chest. Oh, right. So in the story, they find some reason for a student to break into his house just to get close to him. And <laughs> ultimately, she removes the cross. And by doing so, he becomes a vampire and kills her. Um, yes, yeah, so, you know, you're reminding me because I've only read this comic once. So like I haven't exactly soaked it up like you have. But the yeah, the the whole I got to remove that cross. It's creeping me out. Was like, yeah. this cross makes me nervous. It's like, what are you talking about? Well, it's, it's, it's not even that. Is that he, for his entire life, he slept with that cross on the chest, yeah. never had an incident. Somebody breaks into the house, removes yeah. that cross. <laughs> then he goes on a killing spree, and then he realizes that, um, that he should never turn this creature again, and then has this crisis of conscience, wondering if he's ever going to be able to, to be able to control that beast again even though he did perfectly fine up until that point, except for that one night. So for me, <laughs> I, I'm like, well, why don't you sleep with the cross on your chest? And then we don't have to worry about anything. 
But as now as a storyteller, as a person who, who tries to figure out how these stories would have progressed, I'm like, they would literally have to find an excuse to knock that cross off his chest every night in order to continue every issue, which yeah. seems very, creates yourself a lot of trouble. And more importantly, something that might feel extraordinarily repetitive by this third issue, let alone oh, the second. Sure. You know, so it yeah. it was that's why for one, maybe that might be one and done might be the best thing for this one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and and to be fair to that character, I guess, to be fair, that is a giant cross. It's not like a, <laughs> a demure little, you know, little le- lowercase T. That's like a big or name. Yeah, you know, you, you can't be a restless sleeper with that thing on top of you. You go <laughs> off real fast, you know? Yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> Do you remember um the Hanna-Barbera show, Shazam. Sure. I remember, um, for some reason, they came up in a conversation, and I think it was my mother-in-law who heard about it, and, you know, the the premise with the two kids with the rings, and she immediately said, oh, so every episode they have to get the two kids apart. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's and the same correct. kind of thing here. It's, well, yeah, it's the same kind of thing here. It's just like, what possible way you know how, how are we going to get this cross off this guy every single issue so fortunately they did not have to face those uh those challenges well, well that that was the only that was always the fun thing about uh the original captain marvel which is am oh, is yeah. the fact that they always found a way to gag him in the story even though they didn't know he had the power <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> the right word, to transform yet he's always being gagged and i always <laughs> thought that was a little silly too <laughs> Well, if if there was a silly comic ever, right? I mean, yeah. I love I love that material in those comics, but they are for eight year olds at best. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, this has been a lot of fun, and I appreciate it, <laughs> Dan. I want to thank you for your time. Always good to hear from you, Matt. I'm glad to hear you're doing well, and I've been following everything along. I've been watching your defenders too, naturally. You know, speaking of I which, we said David Anthony Kraft did a wonderful back page in uh, in the Fright comics, setting up Dracula and talking about how he was excited working on the character. And I yeah. always thought, wait a minute, he's the guy that uh, that Adam must have liked on Defenders. He must. Oh, have. I did. I know. That's uh, we're looking forward to it. We're recording this afternoon, and we're going to be we're just getting into the Steve Gerber issues possibly so, those are possibly my personal favorites uh, so great pretty amazing stuff there probably yeah, not, probably if steve gerber on defenders is probably why i was defenders fan and continue to continue to read them even though i wasn't sure what the book was about <laughs> 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 yeah yeah well i appreciate it dan you got well, it always again. good to hear from you sir good luck with all this stuff all right thank you thanks for listening to one shot wonders I'll be back next week with another one-shot comic. Meanwhile, hit the subscribe button, leave me a review, tell your friends, and go buy some comics.